Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. Theology and and to the story of the Bible. So we're going to be looking this morning at Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. So let's give our attention once again to the reading of God's holy and inspired and authoritative word. This is what we read. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Most gracious fathers, we read this verse. We're reminded that here the future is set out. Here the hope is promised. Here our fear is answered. I pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom by your spirit to hear these words, to believe these words. Strengthen me by your spirit that I may proclaim clearly and and boldly as I ought to the gospel of Jesus Christ announced here in this glorious verse. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Well, as you know, we started last week this series looking at the biblical covenants. Uh, And we started this because covenant really is what frames the entire Bible. It, it, It really sets kind of all the cornerstones of the story and helps us understand how the story is moving from beginning to end. And last week we looked at the the Adamic covenant, also known as the covenant of works, because it was a covenant wherein Adam had to work in order to to earn the implied blessing of the covenant. And we saw the result of that covenant, that, that because he failed, because he didn't uphold the covenant, but took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate of it, that sin came into the world and death with sin, and so death spread to all men. Because all have sinned, and all are dead in the sin of Adam, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians and in Romans chapter 5. We didn't deal with the specific text in Genesis 3 that that announces the the problem uh, of the curse and and all of those things in in great detail. And so today we're going to look just at this one verse, because at this one verse we see a change in the story. We, we see a, a significant change in the story. If you remember the, the, the way the story has been going, God created Adam and Eve and, and everything was great and, and everything was good and, and he sees that Adam wasn't good on his own so he gives him a wife and, and everything is very good. There's this one command that they're not supposed to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They eat it and everything then is bad. Sin has entered. Death has entered. They're, they're going to be expelled from the garden and, and it just seems like, man, this is not going the way we thought this story was going to go. But when we come to Genesis 3.15, we see, if, if we understand this verse rightly, we see a glimmer of hope announced. Because here we see, and I'm just going to spill the beans right at the beginning, because I know you all know what this is about. Here we see the announcement of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ himself, who will deal with the serpent and who will make everything right in the end. It's perhaps the greatest Mother's Day story that we could come up with. And in God's sweet providence, here we are. But we see a number of other things announced in this verse as well. 
We, we want to, to hurry ahead to the, to the, the promised part, and, and we will get there. But we need to make some stops along the way. So if we look at the very first line of this verse, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. In in a very real way, this verse explains our reality. It it explains the the, the tension that we live in in this life. It explains the frustration. It explains feeling like we are constantly attacked. It explains all of that. Because what we find here, what we find here is is that there's, there's someone who is against us. There's someone who wants to see this whole thing undone utterly. We see the same thing announced in Revelation chapter 12. In in this kind of cosmic Christmas story, where where, where we're described in in these apocalyptic apocalyptic terms, There's, there's this woman and she's about to give birth, but there's this serpent and he's waiting so that he can devour the child. And we see this this picture of Mary and and ultimately of the church and the one who would come from her to deliver the church and Satan there ready to destroy him. We're reminded here in this verse that we have a real enemy. That there is one who stands against us. That there is one, to to use Peter's language, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we need to remember this. In in our culture, with with all of the advancements in in technology and in medicine and in economics and just just all of the the different things that that we've advanced in that, that has allowed us, even if not explicitly, to adopt a very material view of the world. Where, where, where we, we, we've, we've come up with, with so many solutions to so many problems that it's easy for us to think, well, if there's a problem that we can't solve, we just need to, to think a little bit harder, work a little bit longer, we'll find the solution. But, but it's certainly not that we live in a world that is spiritually at war with itself. It's certainly not that. But the Bible teaches us something different. The Bible teaches us that this materialistic worldview, and and by that, I don't mean like going out and buying lots of stuff, though that's part of it. I I mean that, that, that there's something beyond the material world. But our materialistic worldview just says, no, no, what we can see, what we can, we can feel, what we can taste, what we can experiment on, all, all that's what exists. But this Bible reminds us, this Bible verse reminds us that no, there's far more at work in this world. That there is enmity, there is strife between the serpent, between Satan and the woman, and between his offspring and her offspring. As long as we live in this world, as long as we live on this side of glory, there will be enmity. There will be strife. 
There will be struggle. There will be pain. There will be sin. There will be all of that. See, this verse first gives us a very important piece for us to to make sure is part of our worldview. That the reason that things are the way they are is, for one, because the fall has affected everything. So that we read in Romans that, that creation itself waits with eager longing for the day of redemption. So, so everything has been affected by the fall. Nothing is as it should be. C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, The Great Divorce, which is kind of an, an imaginative telling of, of what he thinks heaven might be like. And, and he tries to describe a, a creation that, that is so real that, that we can't quite deal with it. And, and that's kind of how he understands this difference, or at least how he kind of experimentally, imaginatively thinks about this difference. But we see in this verse that there's actually more to it than just that creation has been affected by the fall. There's actually warring parties that are at war with each other constantly. The word enmity is a word that's used a handful of times in the Bible. Often it's used for for someone who is seeking to murder someone else. That's what exists. There's, there's an adversary and there's enmity between him and us. He doesn't want us to get there. He doesn't want us to have the hope of the gospel. Just like he didn't want Adam and Eve to to, to obey and eat the tree of life and live forever. No, he wants us to think that he's the solution. That, that, That he's the one who can fix everything. But at the end of the day, it's his influence that has ruined everything. And his influence is still felt today. This is why when we look at the world and and see the brokenness and and see the failures and see our own failures and, and see the struggle even within ourselves between flesh and spirit. This is why we must understand what all is actually going on. This is why we pray for the end of COVID. This is why we pray for the end of war. Because we know, we know that there is more to what is happening. There's more to what is happening than just the simple human interpretations that we come up with. We live in a world defined by enmity between warring parties. That's where we live. And there's one way out. 
And this is what this is what God is wanting us to see in this passage. But there's also victory announced here, isn't there? It's not just a story of enmity. It's not just a story of, that, hey, it's all going to be it's all going to be horrible. It's all going to be horrible for forever. There's nothing you can do about it. No. When we get to the end of the verse, we read these words that, that there's going to be this tension between the offspring of, of, of the serpent and the woman, but then he, the offspring of the woman, will bruise the head of the serpent, of his offspring. There will be victory. There will be a decisive blow that is finally struck. And the serpent will be dead. And his offspring will be rendered ineffective. And that's our hope. Not that we, through some peace talk, find a way out of our own mess. Not that we come up with, with the cure-all pill or shot or whatever to, to find our way out of some mess. And that's not to decry peace talks. It's not to decry medicine. It's not to decry any of our efforts to, to push back against the enmity. It's to recognize their limited effectiveness. And that ultimately what is needed is the serpent crusher to come and do his work. And to crush the head of the serpent who wars and rails against us seeking to devour any that he can. And we're promised right here at the very beginning of the story that this is exactly what will happen. There will be a seed of the woman, and he will destroy. Bruise, I'm sorry, it's not a good translation. He will crush. It is a fatal blow that is struck. He will crush the serpent's head. I don't know if you've dealt with snakes. But the head is what has to die. And when it does, the serpent has no life left in it. And it can do nothing at that point. That's what Christ will do to this age-old foe. We sang earlier, a mighty fortress is our God, and there's, there's that line, one little word shall fail him. And that word is Christ. He is the one. He is the one who will bring the enmity to an end in order to establish the peace of his people and of his rest. When we read the story of David and Goliath, there's a detail that's often missed. When the, 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 the Goliath, the giant, when he's described, 
the armor that he's wearing is, is called scale armor. It, it's armor that, that he, he basically looks like this giant battle lizard ready to destroy anything that dares challenge him. And all of the people of God know they have no chance. They know that they, they can't stand against him. They can't do it. And, and, and all of the description of Goliath, it, it just piles on top of each other and until what, what it seems that, that literally what they're wanting us to see is this, this giant demonic lizard, this snake-like figure. They're wanting us to see there's the serpent. And how is he killed? The messianic forerunner, the king, arrives on the scene. And what does he do? He crushes his head and then cuts it off. He takes a stone, slings it right into his forehead, and Goliath falls dead. And then he takes Goliath's own sword and severs his head. And it's over. At that point, it's over. The champion of Gath has been done away with. His head has been crushed and they have no hope. An Israelite follows their king in victory from that point on in the story. We see this story played out over and over throughout the Bible. We have a king and he will crush the head of the serpent. So while we live in this life with all of the tension that exists, with all of the enmity that exists, while we live in this life, we must recognize these two facts. That on the one hand, enmity and strife and struggle and pain is to be expected right now. And therefore, we must be on guard. Because you can bet every dollar you have that if Satan can bring that strife into the church, he will. If he can bring the enmity into the church, he will. And too often, we've let that happen. And the reason that we can resist, the reason we can stand against it, the reason we can refuse entry to that enmity is because of the hope that is announced alongside it, that it will be answered. And it's not us who will answer it. Ultimately, it's Christ. But we do get to participate in it, as we'll see in a minute. And so we have to remember, there will be enmity. But that is not what should ultimately define how we view this world. Because there is also hope. There is also victory. There is also Christ. And he will win. But then we read the last line. He shall bruise your head and... You shall bruise. It's the same word as above. You shall crush his heel. 
Again, it's a word that, that typically refers to a fatal blow. And so what are we being told? We're being told here that the way the seed of the woman will bruise or crush the head of the seed of the serpent is with his own life. This is exactly what we read in Hebrews chapter 2, that that he partook of the same things, that, that we being flesh and blood, he partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. That's what's happening here. That's what's being promised here. That the serpent, the devil, Satan, will be destroyed. He will be brought to an end. His reign will be undone. His terror will be answered by Jesus Christ. But it will be answered through the death of that seed. It will be answered through the death of Christ. But for Christ... That death will not speak the final word. For as we celebrated just a few weeks ago, death could not hold him. The tomb is empty. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. He wins. He wins. He wins for you. He wins for me. He wins For himself, he wins for the glory of God. He wins for the triumph of his kingdom. He wins. Through his death, he conquered. Through his death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. That's why we need not fear death and the one who has the power of death and the enmity that we face. Because Christ has conquered it. With his own life, he has conquered it. Now some may say, in fact some do say, that this is all just a little bit too imaginative of a reading of this text. That really all we should see here is this ideological idea that that, that people aren't going to like snakes. Perhaps. But everything else in this story, when we come to the New Testament reading of it, is cast in terms of this covenantal struggle that we live within. And and there's no reason for all of a sudden in this verse to stop and go, well, that's not what's going on here. This is just a simple statement of man's relationship to nature. Nothing more. No. And in fact, as we look at the Bible, we see over and over and over that they're waiting for someone to come and deliver them. 
And over and over and over, that someone that they're waiting for is cast in terms of the seed of the woman. So we read in Isaiah chapter 7, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. In the, in the midst of the announcement of judgment in the, 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 is Isaiah, in the, midst, in the midst of all of that, they're saying, here's where your hope is found. The seed of the woman. The virgin will give birth. It'll be a son. You'll call his name God with us. Through him, you will be delivered. But then as we read the story of Isaiah, we see that that we will be delivered through him, only through his suffering and death. That, That he will die in our place. As we read in that great suffering servant song, in Isaiah 52 and 53. He will suffer and die for his people. He will be led to the slaughter that we might find life in him. When Matthew announces the the birth of Christ in Matthew chapter 1, he points back to this story of Isaiah and says Jesus is the one that we're waiting on. When Luke uh, tells the story through Jesus' genealogy, he runs it all the way back to Adam and Eve so that what we see, as clearly as it can be shown, is that Jesus is the descendant of the woman. He is the seed of the woman who will come to bring deliverance for his people. That's what's happening. Isaiah also gives us this picture of everything being made right again in chapter 11, verse 8, where he tells us that the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. That he will be rendered so not a threat that a defenseless child, dependent on his mother for life itself, can play over his whole with no fear of harm. That's where this is going. That's where Christ is taking us. And so the question then becomes, as we look at all of this, why are we diving into this as we think about covenant? Well, because here we see the first promise of what theologians call the covenant of grace. That that, that is said quite apart from the covenant of works where Adam had responsibility, things he had to do in order to receive life. Immediately, on the hills of their failure, what does God do? He promises that he will send someone to fix it. Not based on Eve's performance, not based on anybody's performance, but the performance of that seed. He will fix it. He will crush the head of the serpent. And he will do this for all of us. Here we see the story has changed 
dramatically. No longer will we relate to God based on our performance. No longer will our hope be based on us getting it right, of us taking the right fruit and not the wrong fruit. Now our hope, our life, our future, our security, our identity, all of who we are will be based on the coming of this seed and his victory over our enemy. He will bring peace. And we will have peace in him. But we have to understand this wasn't just plan B. It would be easy if we read this passage on its own to go, okay, so God tried something. It didn't work out. So now he's got to come up with a new plan. Because these Foolish people that he created didn't get it. And so now God's in a hard place and has to bail them out. But what we see when we read Ephesians chapter 1, when we read John chapter 6, is that all of this was set in place before the foundations of the world leading some theologians to to talk about this this pre-temporal, before-time covenant of redemption between the parties of the Godhead. Where they would work out the salvation of the people of God. Where they would establish the kingdom of God forever. Some object to calling it a covenant. It doesn't particularly matter one way or the other, but, but what we must see is that this, is the outworking of that eternal covenant, of that eternal decree of God, and not his response to something that he didn't see coming. Not his response to something that he didn't see coming. But the outworking of his eternal plan set in place before the foundations of the world. And so we have to backtrack for a second, don't we? Because all of a sudden we read last week's covenant a little bit differently. All of a sudden we read last week's covenant as part of this plan set in place before the foundations of the world. Perhaps this is why on the one hand we read that all the positive implications of that covenant, notice, are at best implied. And why we read, when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. When we think about it from God's perspective, it was never an if. It was always a when. He knew what would happen. Because he was working out his plan to establish his eternal kingdom on earth as it is in heaven from before the foundations of the world. So when we see this announced, it's not plan B. It's God working out his plan and announcing for the first time from the human perspective where we get to read it for the first time where this is all going. And it's going to our victory. 
And it's going to our victory through Jesus Christ. Even in the 3rd century B.C., you know, 300 some odd years before Christ came, the Jewish interpretation of this was messianic. In the first few centuries of the church, Justin and Irenaeus and in the 100s A.D. read this and said, Ha! It's about Christ. And so we read it now and say, yes, it's about Christ. But because it is a covenantal passage, we see that it's about Christ for us. That His victory is our victory. Because we're united to Him. And so we get to the end of the book of Romans. And we read something that's absolutely fantastic. Paul's giving his final greetings and, 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 and reminding the people once more what's going on. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. What's he describing there? This ongoing enmity. This ongoing tension. The ongoing strife that defines life in this world. He continues, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. I want you to know. I want you to know there's a battle. I want you to know there's struggle. I want you to know there is strife. And I want you to to have your eyes wide open to all of it. Because it will come to you. It will come to the church. There will be people. There will be sheep, uh, wolves in sheep clothing that, that sneak in to cause problems and to bring that enmity and that strife to you. And then he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Do you see the connection? There will be enmity. It will be on our front stoop. It will come to us. And so we must pay attention. We must understand the life that we're living. But we must not lose sight of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And here Paul reminds us, because this is a covenantal idea, well, it is Christ who gains victory. We get to participate in that victory. We get to participate somehow in the crushing of the head of Satan. And I can't wait. We get to. Like the Israelites, when Goliath had fallen, crushed the Philistines. Because they were participating in the victory that their king had already won. We get to participate in the victory as well. Christ wins it by his death. Christ wins it by conquering death for us. But we are made victors in him. And while the victory is squarely on his shoulders, 
because he is our federal head, because he is the head of the covenant of grace, because he is the one to whom we are united. Paul tells us we get to crush his head also. We get to walk in the victory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we need not fear. We need not fear, though the earth gives way. Because we are united to Christ. And we will triumph in him. That's the covenant of grace. And as we're going to see, it's spelled out through Noah and Abraham and Moses. But over and over and over, what we see is that victory is ours in Christ Jesus, our King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of the seed of the woman who will come to crush the head of the serpent and who has come for that purpose and by his death has defeated death and the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And we stand in his victory and there will come a day that we rejoice in even before it gets here. That you'll crush Satan even under our feet. that we will stand in victory and there will be no more threat and there will be no more strife and there will be no more enmity but only victory. We long for that day. Teach us even now to frame our lives according to the hope of this promise. In the name of Christ, our head, the serpent crusher, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.